0: You're on vacation, right School's out, and now it is, it is christmas time and, and there's, a, there's a lot going on during that time. It seems weird that school went through Wednesday or Thursday, and then you were here at church on Sunday and then Christmas Eve and then Christmas, and it just it just doesn't stop it's pretty relentless. Um, thanks for coming today, thanks for being here during the holiday and choosing to come. Uh, we love having family together. That's what holiday is about, getting family together, and, and we're family here. And so whether we have the same blood running through our veins, we have the same blood that covers us. And, and so I'm grateful for you being here. I'm grateful for those on Facebook that are watching and, and live that are that are not here. I love technology that's able to do that and connect us with people and, and stay connected that way. So I'm excited about that. And with Christmas being two days away, there's always a lot on our mind and uh, lots of last-minute shopping to do that's out there if you haven't started yet. Uh, welcome to my world, and uh, I will be busy uh, today and tomorrow getting all that squared away uh, because I wait the best for last. That's my philosophy on that, and, uh, or something else. But um, when I think about, about Christmas and, and the busyness and the craziness and, and the season of it, a few things come to my mind, and I want to share just three of them with you real quick. The third one will be the long point on this as we go. And you're looking at these guys up here, and we're going to get to them in just a second, um, and hopefully give you some information maybe you've never even heard before, or looking at it in a little bit different way. Uh, the first thing that I think about Christmas, and, and this has totally changed in my life Christmas is stressful. It used to not be that way. When I was a kid, there was stress whatsoever. The only stress was what time I could get out of my bed and get down to the presents like that was it. And, and, uh, there was no stress involved in that, but now as I've gotten older and become a dad and all this stuff, it's like, it gets kind of stressful with things that are going on. You got your travel, you got food prep, you got people pleasing, you got family, you got Christmas cards that you have to plan and get and turn them in on the 23rd so we can give them to you on the 24th. Um, so please go pick up your Christmas cards in our central post office today. Um, you got to get the right presents and make sure they don't get stolen off of your porch. Uh, when they get delivered there, there's there's so many things, the debt that you have, it's like, we need a vacation to recover from Christmas vacation and stress is a part of the season. I don't know that God designed it to be that way. I'm not sure that he said, Hey, I want you to have this break and think about my son being born. And I want you to stress you out as much as possible. Like, I don't think that's his goal. I don't think that's something he's like, ah, you did good this season because you were stressed out. But yet that we tend to do that. Second thing about Christmas is this Christmas is busy. I mean it is busy you have shopping you have to go to look at the lights you have to watch all the specials that are on tv wrap the gifts go to work parties go to kids parties go to church parties you got to bring the right white elephant gift and make sure that it's one that everybody wants to steal or whatever but brett taught me how to do that this year at our staff party what you do here's a little trick you bring the gift that you want and then you steal it when it's your turn you're guaranteed to go home happy like that's there's the secret, so that's what I'm going to do from now on, is get something only I would like, and uh, and then we'll be great on that. The third thing about Christmas that comes to my mind, too, Christmas is costly. Like, it's expensive. I was reading some stats this week about that, and one-third of all people expect to spend over $1,000 on Christmas. Like, what? I don't know who those people are, but I hope they're buying me a present. Like, that's what I'm thinking. But over half the people expect to spend 700 or more. Statistics say that in 2018, there will be $721 billion spent this season. $721 billion in the United States alone spent on Christmas. I'm thinking, that is a lot of debt. That's a lot. Must, Our economy, must we must feel good about it. We must feel good about our jobs. We must feel good about some things in order to do it. Or do we feel guilty that we have to get stuff and one-up stuff, and so we just run up debt on our credit card? And this isn't a message to go, man, you're making Christmas sound terrible, Alan. You're talking about it's stressful. You talk about it's busy. You talk about it's costly. But it's, it's real in that way. And if we don't watch ourselves, we miss the whole thing. If we're not careful, we look back and go, what? Well, and I don't ever want Christmas to be forgettable. And sometimes Christmas becomes forgettable because of Christmas. And we got to be careful as a culture and a society of doing that. And so what I want to do is take a different look at the cost of Christmas from some different points of view. And we're going to look at these three guys today, the wise men that are here. These are, are incredible dolls. We'll get to the gifts in just a minute. But these three guys, great story behind them is uh, my, my grandmother-in-law, uh, my mother-in-law's mom, uh, bought these 50 years ago in Dallas. And there was a lady in her neighborhood, a single mom who was trying to make ends meet, got these dolls. And she would paint them, go to garage sales and estate sales and find jewelry, take the jewelry apart and decorate and make each wise man its own individual thing and sell them as sets of three. And so Amy's Nemaw um, bought those and gave them to Sherry. And now hopefully Sherry's going to give them to Amy. Not that I'm wishing anything bad on my mother-in-law. That's not what I mean. But, uh, but, but they're just such a, it's a cool thing, the picture. But we'll get to them here in just a second. If you have your Bibles, um, turn to Matthew 2. Matthew 2 is where we're going to be. Now, the typical Christmas story is Luke 2, but we're going to jump and look at it from Matthew's point of view because he unpacks the story of these guys really well. And so we're going to just kind of walk through it a little bit, a verse at a time, and kind of unpack some things because I, don't, I want you to, to get the truth of this. And I'm just going to be as honest as I can, and, and maybe if it makes me less of a pastor, that's okay. But I never looked at the depth of this story before like I did this year. There's so many things about this that I take for granted and go, well, I know that story. I know that story. I know who those guys are. I know that. We sing the songs and we do the things and and we can say the highlights of the story. But man, there's so much more in there. And I want us to really grab that today. So that's what we're going to walk through. Here. So Matthew chapter two, we'll start in verse one. It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that Again, you're like, okay, we're not going to stop that often of every single verse, but I want you to hit it after Jesus was born. So the time frame that we're talking about is obviously after Jesus was born, but how long after he was born? When when would this happen? Well, there are certain things that go on when a child is born. You go to the temple actually a couple of times. You make your offering that's there, and so there's a 40-day kind of a period that, that there's some rituals that need to go on in that time. And so we know it's at least 40 days old. But we also know that the wise men were coming from far away and we'll get to them in that and it took them quite a journey to get there. And and we'll talk through that part when we hit them in just a second. But there's a there's a time frame that's that's in here that's beyond 40 days, but they were also it tells us later in the scriptures that they were in a house now, not in the cave that we learned about last week. And so there's the shepherds showed up day of, the wise men show up maybe the year of That's kind of what we're looking at, what most scholars would say is approximately a year after he was born is when these guys showed up. So life had moved on a little bit for them. It wasn't an infant anymore, and so that's kind of where where we are there. Then it says he was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod is an interesting guy, and the more we know about him, it helps us understand this story a little bit more. And we gloss over him a whole lot in this story because we hit Jesus and the wise men, and that's kind of the highlight deal. But Herod plays a significant role in this. So let me kind of tell you his story on this. When Herod was 25 years old in the year 47 B.C., he was installed as governor in Israel. He was, he was put there by Roman uh, leadership, put him there as governor in Israel. Well, after about 10 years, the Jews, in partnership with some other folks, came and overthrew him and established their own rule. And, and of course, that's not going to make him very happy. He'd been in place for 10 years. Now the Jews had come and taken back over. And he's like, no, 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 we can't have this. So he goes to the Romans and says, get me a squad. Let's go put these people in their place. Sure enough, Rome sends a, 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 an army with him. They come back. They take the Jews out, put them back in their place so he can be that. And instead of being governor of part of Israel, he's now made king of part of israel and he went to the romans and says now that we've done this and i've been established in this spot here's the title i'd like you to give me i'd like to be called king of the jews now that's a name we don't give to herod often but we hear it for other people and we're about to get to that fascinating thing to know that that this guy herod self-proclaimed himself king of the jews because he ruled over them because he was a jerk he was a dictator. He was not a nice man in what he did. And, and he had this 33 year reign where he was called King of the Jews. He established himself in this dictatorial way where he was just a jerk and ruled over them and was harsh. Um, he was always paranoid about his throne being taken. He was so concerned about his power that he had three of his own sons killed because he thought they were going to try to take his throne. Like this guy is a jerk. And, and he's the guy that's in this story right here that God is going to use in a significant way to see the, the prophecy come true. It's so incredible to think about. I've never dug that deep into Herod to understand that he had chosen that title for himself in this 33 years that he was going on. Now, we finish the first verse. It says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, the, the term wise men, it, the Greek term is where we get magi from. And so it, it's not necessarily magicians, although that would be a part of the thinking that was there. What they would do uh, as, as wise men, here's what they were, were known for. One, they were known to have superior knowledge in astronomy and interpreting dreams. And I'll tell you how they got that skill here in just a second. But that's what they were known for. Number two, they focused their expertise in astronomy in order to guide kings. They were wise counsel. They were who the king would go to when they had a major decision to make. When they were deciding if they were going to move or go or attack or do whatever the next kingly thing they needed to do, these guys were the ones that would sign off on that. These guys were the ones that had that. Now, how did they get this? If you look back, they were basically disciples from Daniel when Daniel had kind of a skill of interpreting dreams. Daniel was able to do that. These would be along the lines of that. They were basically graduates of Daniel's school. And this is 700 years since Daniel wrote that. It's fascinating. We don't have time to go into it today. Go back and read Daniel in light of the birth of Christ and read some of those things that are in there. And you will see the prophecy that was there that these guys had. So they were, they were well-educated. They studied. They, they, they understood this. And because of their, their study in astronomy as well as the scriptures, they would be able to recognize There's prophecy that's being fulfilled and it's confirmed in the skies. Thus, their ability to recognize the star, their ability to understand its movement, their ability to recognize and respond accordingly. And it's amazing how how these guys did that. And so they would know that this Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They would know that, that a star is going to be part of the deal because of the prophecy. It's, it's, it's fascinating to read that. No person, no, no Persian, excuse me, ever became king without getting these guys approval and crowning. Like, they were a big deal. They were significant in the culture of that time, and they traveled a significant distance. If you go from Babylon to Bethlehem, you're about 550 miles. Now that's assuming that's where they came from is Babylon, but we know they came from the east and that's where they would have studied. And that's where, so it makes sense that they would have come there 550 miles, not an easy journey. This isn't like you just, you know, you Uber over to there and you get there and, you know, in a couple of days, this is probably a year's journey. They're walking, riding camels, have donkeys. Like this is not an easy trip to take. Matter of fact, they're walking through land that would put them at risk where someone would come and raid them or attack them and steal from them or kill them. Like this is quite a journey they're making. And it's five hundred and fifty miles one way for one reason for one person. They were a big deal, and even they said, We're not as big deal as what we're going to see. They recognized their place in this. So we get there. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now we know all the parts. And this is what they said. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, when it says they were asking around, it didn't mean they went straight to Herod's office. They came to town and they asked, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Now, that word's going to get back to Herod. You talk about a trigger for a paranoid madman. These fancy guys, these important guys, these significant guys are showing up going, hey, where's the guy who was born king of the Jews? Not the one who gave himself that title. Not the jerk that's in power over here. We want the one that was born. Well, you talk about light and a flame inside this paranoid guy who had already had three of his sons killed and we know what he does here in just a minute it gets pretty significant there is a clear and present danger to his throne and he will not sit still and be okay with that his focus was on power not on the power and and so how did they get there it answers in the very right next thing it says for we saw his star when it rose We are educated men who recognize movements in the heavens. We recognize this and this star. We saw it when it rose and it's not a normal star. It's not your everyday star. You want to read some fascinating stuff? Go study about the star. There's some amazing. We don't have time for that today. It's so cool to think how God did that and how he took natural and supernatural and combined them together to allow that to happen. It's not the only time in scripture that God showed up in some unusual form to lead people. And I believe he still shows up in unusual forms to lead us today if we'll look for it. And so these guys recognized it. They said, for we saw the star when it rose. Well, why did they come? They answer it very next there. We saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's what we've come to do. We haven't come to impress him. We haven't come to influence him. We haven't come to kiss up to him. We haven't come to buy his favor. We haven't come to buy his political gain. We have showed up for one purpose and one purpose alone. That's to worship. That's what we've come to do. We have come to worship Him. Well, What does worship mean? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to them? Here's how I would describe that in this and define it in this moment. Worship is an active response to God where we declare His worth. Worship is an active response to God where we declare His worth, not ours. And that will take on many different forms. There's not one set way that you check the box and say, this is worship. It's a response to the awesomeness of God. And that's what these guys were doing. They had a response to the overwhelmingness of God and the prophecy that was there and the excitement that was coming and the journey that they're going to take. And so here they are. We've come to worship him. We prioritize something's worth by surrendering things of lesser value for it. Let me say that again. We prioritize something's worth By surrendering things of lesser value for it. How we value something is shown by what we're willing to give up for it. What we're willing to walk away from for it. It's not what we hold on to. It's what we let go of shows the value of what we worship. And that's a significant thing because we'll see what uh, what they choose to surrender later. But first we have to look at Herod's response. So word gets back to him that these guys have shown up saying, we want to see the one born king of the Jews, not the one that took over and made himself king of the Jews. So now we hit verse, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now, troubled is probably not an accurate word. That's a much more tame or calm word than what it was. I would say a more accurate word would be terrified. Fear hit him at his core. And you'll see why in just a second it would, it would be a deeper scare for him a deeper fear for him but he's terrified in this moment he was troubled he was terrified and all jerusalem with him now that doesn't mean every single person in jerusalem probably what that's talking about are all the other leaderships in jerusalem that he installed as leaders as his guys and if he loses his throne they lose their throne too he loses his power they lose their power and so they're all terrified like this this king of the jews is here now this one that that we've actually heard about in the past. We'll, we'll get there in just a second. It's kind of crazy on all of that. So he continues on. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He has an intelligence briefing. He calls all of his officers in and says, Guys, we can talk about this. Have you heard this rumor? There's these wise men here. They're looking for the king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews, but they're not talking about me. Let's talk about this. Because he, he recognized what was going on. And 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 you would think that these guys would be excited about the long-awaited Messiah. It wasn't like they were unaware of that. It's like they had no clue about that. You can go back and read Herod's lineage and where he came from. He wasn't completely cut off from learning about the things of Israel. It's fascinating to read that stuff. And he's like, where is this Christ to be born? And he goes to his guys. And they told him this. In Bethlehem of Judea, for uh, so it is written by the prophet. And this is Micah chapter 5, verse 2, if you want to, that's what they're referring to when they read this. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So in the prophecy of, of hundreds of years ago, these guys knew it. And so when the question was asked, where is this Messiah to be born? They knew the answer from the prophets of old. They were able to give that to him. And he knows where in Bethlehem, which is six miles away from where he is. So this guy is close. He is a clear and present and close danger to my throne now. And the fear has struck him because he recognizes the scriptures that are there. And it's it's interesting. Now he wants to know the when of this. And so... He moves on. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he gets his information and he figures out the where. Now he's got to figure out the when because his guys don't know that. But the wise men do because they showed up. Let's get them to the And king calls them in. They come in. And through a conversation with them, he's able to ascertain, yeah, okay, we saw the star about a year ago or whatever. And it popped up when Jesus was born. And so now we're headed over to see him. It's my terms, not theirs. They probably spoke a little different, but he was able to figure out, all right, this guy is somewhere one to two years old, max. Like that's, that's how long this born King of the Jews guy is here. So now I can make a plan. He figured out the where he figured out the when. Now he's going to figure out what to do and his, what to do starts by finding out exactly where it is. So he says, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child." And when you have found him, bring me word. And he meant all of that. And then he lied. That I too may come and worship him. That was not the plan. That I may come and kill him is the plan. That I may come and have that guy slaughtered because I'm not losing my power. Because this is about me. It's not about him. And, and, and he's going to use these wise men to get that. Like, guys, head over to, to Bethlehem. When you get there, drop a pen. Send it to me. I'll send some guys right over and I'm going to come worship That's what I'm going to do. God's GPS is so much better. When we listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he may take us a different route than what we think, but it's going to be the best way for us. And these wise men were willing to do that through following the star. And they get there, and they arrive, and they talk to the king, and something troubles them in their spirit, and they go, and now they're going to show up and do it. What's amazing to me is someone as evil as Herod, and you know his story, killing his sons and, and his plot to kill all the babies and how many die and that. It's coming here in just a minute. But even in all of his evilness, he still acted on the trustworthiness of the scriptures. See, God's word was still truth and he knew it. And he acted on it. He trusted the scriptures to be true. Now, he was using it for evil gain. Guys, we've got to, to trust God's word to do it. I, I don't know about you. I don't know. If you've ever been asked this question, but as I'm studying, it made me ask the question of myself. How often do I believe God's word to be true, but I don't honor him by submitting to it? How many times do I read God's word for my pleasure instead of my obedience? How many times do I look at God's word to justify my actions instead of give me direction for what to do? And too often, I want to make the scriptures fit me. We weren't made to break the scriptures. The scriptures were made to break us. And too often, we, we move it and mold it to do that, and we don't submit to God's Word. And maybe I'm just talking to me in that, but I sure like it whenever I get to choose the things. But somehow it ends up hurting me. <laughs> but when I choose to submit to God's Word and His will, things turn out so much better. God has never asked believers to become better educated. He's asked believers to become better dedicated. And we can fill our brains with knowledge and all kinds of information. If we don't act on it and put it into our lives, it's foolishness. We're fooling ourselves. He doesn't ask us to be better educated. He asks us to be better dedicated. What are we dedicated to? These wise men were dedicated to getting to the right place. And this is how they chose to worship. So we're going to finish up the story here with this. So send them to Bethlehem and he wants to worship them too. Then we go to verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. That's so cool. And again, go go read that. But that star was so far away, and they're following and following it. It's like your maps. The closer you get to something on your phone, it just shrinks down where you're going. You can see right where you're supposed to go. I just I envision the star doing that too. Like, I'm a long way away. Just get to me, get to me, get to me. And the closer you get to the star, the more, the further it drops down on the horizon right towards Jesus. I just think that's a cool picture in my head of God and his GPS doing that. So um, they, they found it they, and they went to the place where the child was. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, they, they were fired up about it. this is 550 mile journey. Just one way. Right. And, and this is not just an easy thing. But this this journey had come for months had come to an end, we finally got there after all the work, after all the sweat, after all the fears, after all the work, all the food, everything that's gone on on this trip. And so often I want to give up on God if he doesn't do what I want him to do in a day. And these guys pursued for a year and had nothing. They didn't see Jesus for a year, but they didn't give up. They kept going. Imagine the joy of that, of not giving up on your goal and getting to see it. Because you've been obedient to it. And here they are in that moment that's doing that. And they're finally looking at the face of the Messiah they had waited 700 plus years to see. All of this, all the prophecy, all their their dads and their granddads and their great granddads who had lived before them and passed on all this knowledge, passed on this information. All the prophecy was happening in their lifetime. How cool is that? All of that was now coming to be, and they were getting to be a part of it. And as true worshipers do, they brought their very best. Because that's what you do in worship. You bring your best. You don't bring your leftovers. God's not interested in your seconds. He's interested in your firsts. Because he gave you his first. So, here's what they do. And going into the house... Which, again, see, they're in a house now. They found a dwelling, so they're not still in the cave and and swatting clothes and all that kind of stuff. They've been through all that stuff. It says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and their response was this. And they fell down and worshipped him. There was nothing else to do at that moment. They fell down and worshipped. They humbled themselves and worshipped. I don't know what it exactly looked like. Did they hit a knee? Did they hit two knees? Did they lay on the ground? Did they cry? Did they sing? Did they hug each other? Did they get to hold it? I don't know what they did, but I know they worshipped. I know by definition they gave up other things to show the worth of this man. They sacrificially did this in this moment. And here's what they did. then, then. That wasn't the first thing they did. They worshiped. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that's where these guys come in. And we have done a disservice to the Magi by saying there was only three of them. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us how many there were. We know there was three gifts. But my guess is there were multiple of these guys. You think these were the only three from the whole school of Daniel that wanted to see this thing, that recognized the star? I'm guessing it's a field trip for the whole class. Like, let's go together. And, and let's take an army with us to protect us. Let's go. And yeah, I'll bring gold. I'll bring gold. I'll bring gold. I'll bring, I'll bring frankincense frankincense murmur. Mur, mur. Like there was massive amounts of this. It wasn't just one little thing to say, here's, here's a little gold. And here's a little, no, they, they brought this to him and they, and these are cool. These guys even have these little gift things right here. So in here, I actually have a gold coin. Uh, this is from 1891 and it's, it's hundred percent gold, whatever. It's pretty weighty and all that stuff. You can, Kind of going to hear it hit the deal. Um, it is of significant value. And something of gold, even today, has not lost its value. It's still of great worth. And they would bring this gold of great worth to show how worthy he is, not how great they are, not how rich they are, but how incredible he is. And we're going to show your worthiness by what we willingly give up, what we're willing to surrender, what we're willing to say, here, this is for you, not for me. And and gold was one of those things that they gave, and I'll tell you why in just a second some of this happened, because too often we focus on the symbolism of the gifts, and that's fine, but there's so much more to it than that. The value of the gifts matter. It matters. Then you have frankincense, which is in this little thing. And it's a it's a lighter colored rosin. I don't know how well you can see that or whatever, but it's got a definite smell to it. We have essential oils that are made from it. Um, even today but it was of significance. Myrrh, the same thing over here. It's it's a darker rosin, and I don't know how well y'all can even see this, but um, it's a darker rosin that's in there, and it has its own unique smell. And and these were made from trees you could only find in Arabia and Ethiopia and the Middle East type places. And, and they were of significant worth, and they would take these rosin rocks, these resin rocks, and they would put it into oil form, they would put it in different things. It was used for ceremonies, it was used for weddings, it was used for funerals, it was used for medicine. It was used for so many things. Its uses were significant in helping you be the best you could be. Yes, it's a burial spice, but it's so much more than that, because there's a cost to it. There's value to it that it's just not readily available. You don't just go down to the, to the myrrh tree and scrape you off some and you got some. Like, that's not how it worked. There's no frankincense bush that you just go and you turn the handle and fill up your cup with frankincense. That's not how it worked. These gifts were of significance for so many reasons, and they brought all of this and placed it at Jesus. These items attributed worth and dignity to whoever received them. And Jesus was the one receiving these gifts of significance that were there. And, and, and there were probably lots of these guys that showed up to do it. Lots of these guys brought several. And so there's several myrrh, several, for instance, several gold that was there. Why, why, would, they, why would they need that? Well, I'll get to that in just a second because there's, there's even more to it. But our biggest takeaway is that these men paid to worship Christ. There was a cost involved. Christmas is costly. And the very first Christmas had quite the price tag. See, we tend to look at Christmas in light of our budget, what we can spend, what we can throw on a credit card and pay three times of what it's worth because we valued it so much we put it on a credit card. And I'm not saying that to bust you on this, but I'm saying that we have placed value on others that have become greater than the value we've placed on Christ. And that makes Christmas forgettable. Because if the best thing you remember about Christmas is what you got and not what you gave, then you missed Christmas. And it's important. I'm not saying we shouldn't give. Absolutely. I'm not saying we shouldn't receive. Absolutely. That's part of it. But it's not the only thing. And these guys came that first Christmas and, and brought that. And when you look at the price tag of what it was, I want to I give you the cost of this and, and kind of look at it for a second. Because it cost the wise men time and money to make the 550-mile journey one way plus going back. It's an 1,100-mile trip that they made, and it cost them the time. It cost them the money. It cost them everything to prepare, the food, the water, the animals, the army that would protect them along the way, this big entourage of people. It cost them that. Number two, it cost them the gifts that they brought of significant value. The value of these gifts were amazing. Now, this is such a cool part of it right here. In the first 40 days of Jesus' life, they would have had to gone to the temple twice. They would have had to make sacrifices. When they did, it tells us earlier in, in, in Luke chapter 2 story that, that Joseph and Mary gave two pigeons or two doves, which was the lowest sacrifice you could make. That's what the poor gave. They didn't have a goat. They didn't have a sheep. They didn't have any of these other animals. They gave the birds. And that's the lowest one. Jesus was born to a lower class family and their sacrifice that they made were these two pigeons. If the wise men had come before they went to the temple, they would have had to give given out of this because this is now what they had, but they didn't. So why did they bring this stuff? Just to say, hey, here's a burial spice because he's going to die. And here's some coins because he's a king. And here's some Like That's not why they brought them. They didn't know that. They weren't fully aware of all that. They were on the other side of the cross. They were being obedient and showing the worth of this baby. Now, what did that turn out helping them to do? Because they left, right? The the wise men dropped the stuff, did their worship, and they headed back. And then the the angel came to Joseph in the dream and said, Get your wife, get your kid, go to Egypt. You need to get out of here because that death thing's coming for babies, right? How are they going to pay for that trip to Egypt? God's provision. How is Joseph going to buy lumber so he can build things as a carpenter to barter and trade for food? The gifts. He had the resources now that God had given him because of his obedience to be able to provide for his family. Isn't that amazing? that these wise men traveled 550 miles to worship. And oh, by the way, we're we're here to worship, but we're also going to give these gifts because you are worthy and we want to show you your worth. And Joseph's thinking, all right, that's awesome. And then he gets a dream that night. You need to go to Egypt right now. Well, how am I going to pay for this? And he pulls out the gold coins. He pulls out the frankincense and the myrrh, and they have more than enough for their journey to Egypt. And historians will tell you that Herod died later that year. He was such a madman. He died later that year and they came back. So the journey back. Like there's so many things and God's provision came through these wise men. That's just so cool to me. But it cost them the gifts that were there. It could have cost them their lives, coming and going in that. It cost an unknown amount of families. Anybody that had a baby that was a boy that was two years or younger, it cost them their lives. How many families had to lose their son because of this? Isn't that... That's crazy to think. Some some historians say it was a small number. Some say it was a big number. I tend to lean towards the small number. Um, Bethlehem was not a big town. 2,000-ish people that were there. And and the decree that he gave, he knew right where it was. He knew it was in Bethlehem. So he didn't need to send a decree to the nation. He sent it to this area because it was an immediate threat. And so he went to eliminate the immediate threat. So any kid in Bethlehem that would be two or younger that's a male, you're probably looking at a dozen or two kids. And one is too many. But how many families lost their child because of this? There was a cost that first Christmas and it cost them their kid. You go further back in this, it cost Zachariah his voice. John the Baptist's dad was mute the whole time. It cost Mary her reputation. It cost Joseph his dignity. It even cost the shepherds the risk of losing the sheep they were supposed to keep because they came to see Jesus. Like everyone involved in Christmas, there was a cost. Christmas has been costly for a long time. But the greatest cost of Christmas was paid by Jesus himself when that bill came due 33 years later and he said I'll pay the ultimate price for Christmas and he got up on that tree and he died for you and me see worshiping God always comes with a price it comes with a cost and the question we have to ask ourselves is what are we willing to pay what does it cost us to put Christ first in our lives not put Christ in our lives but could put Christ first in our lives I don't I don't even like to take a trip without air conditioning, much less 550 miles on a donkey or a camel. That's not going to smell good. Like we complain. I complain when things don't go perfectly the way I want them to go. And yet I look at this first Christmas and see the cost that's there. What things of lesser value are we surrendering to show the worth of Jesus? Well, the better question is, what things are we holding on to that are of greater value to us than Jesus? See, that question kicks me right in the teeth. What is it that I'm holding on to that I say, man, I love you, Jesus, but not as much as this, because I'm not willing to surrender that. Your worth isn't as important as mine. And I make it about me. Christmas has never been about you individually, but it has been about us. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. We've been given this great gift. But what else are we holding on to that keeps that there? We have today, we're at church. Tomorrow we have Christmas Eve. The next day we have Christmas. We have three consecutive days in a row. What will your worship look like? What will it look like? Only you can answer that question. But I think we need to take a moment to worship the King right now. So I'm going to pray.